0: Good morning, I am Pastor Mike, I'm so happy to see you all here today. Uh, We're going to continue journeying through our summer series, Faith That Works, where we are going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of James, this in-your-face letter of the New Testament about the relationship between faith and works, between beliefs and actions when it comes to the Christian life. For James, faith in Jesus can't just be about head knowledge, he believes strongly that real, genuine faith must be something that works in our world, that works for us, and then through us works for others. And we've finished up chapter one, which as we've seen over the last few weeks sets up the major themes of the letter. The call to become people who are both hearers of Jesus' teachings, but also then doers of his teachings in the world. The challenge to transform how we respond to suffering and learn to make our suffering into something redemptive, the exhortation to persevere in Jesus's way of life when tempted by the world to take part in what's broken it over our history. And above all, James's central thesis statement, that genuine faith always comes back to Jesus's teaching about love, what James calls the perfect or royal law. That is Jesus' great commandment to love God fully and our neighbor as ourselves. His belief is that the purpose of religion is to make us people who hear Jesus' teaching on love and then become doers of it in the world through how we live. A belief that from here James sets out applying to a whole host of challenging, practical, and concrete issues of our lives. But before we get to the first issue that he's going to apply this law to, I want to talk about lists. You see, I love making lists. One of my favorite books is this, High Fidelity. High Fidelity. Okay, there we go. (laughs) High Fidelity. And this whole book is structured around the concept of making lists. It centers around someone who thinks of his entire life according to top five lists. For example, he talks about his desert island all time top five most horrible breakups his desert island top five favorite songs that he would like sung at his funeral, and so on and so on and so on. And I relate to this character immensely because I do this in almost every aspect of my life. For example, I remember spending way too much time, I'm going to date myself, but creating my MySpace top eight friends list. (laughs) Lindsay gets me. This was something that you could put publicly on your MySpace page where it said, who your top eight, Friends were, which in hindsight is probably the most passive, aggressive, and rude feature I've ever seen put on the internet. It's like, hey, I don't like you that much, <laughs> I guess. Sorry, Lindsay, you didn't make mine. Uh, in college, another example, the release of the college football rankings was like a holy day for me and my friend Grew. I remember just obsessing over where UF landed as compared to the monsters at FSU, or Alabama, who was always above us, or Georgia, who was always below us in the good old days and i truly believe that when i stand before god i will have to give an account for the sheer amount of my life i've spent reading nba power rankings it's made me a better person one of the first things i ask new people when i get to know them when i want a sense of who they are as human beings whether they are capable and have a capacity for good and evil um, is what are your top five favorite movies And my assumption is that if you don't say Godfather Part 2, or there will be blood, that you are a wicked individual who takes part in the destruction of our world. Even this past week, Rookie and I went to Shenandoah National Park, and one of the first things we asked each other on the way home was where does it rank in terms of the national parks we've been to? This is just a common part of our human experience, is it not? List-making is something that we are drawn to, creating rankings partly because it's great content creation and producing, um, as the kids say these days. It creates areas to talk and debate our passions, but also because we're just hardwired for it. There's a host of psychology about this. Our brains have a natural impulse to try and order our world, to create categories and then slot what we see and experience into those categories and judge them accordingly, which is all well and good with our hobbies and our interests. But boy, we can't seem to turn this off. And when it gets applied to the wrong things, it gets broken very, very fast. Especially when we apply it to human beings. You see, we use this impulse often to create rankings of human beings and human value. In other words, to create hierarchies of value. And then we judge others by these man-made criteria and slot them into what we come to see as their place within our list, our ordering of the world. Assigning them certain levels of value and then treating people differently according to where we place them within it. Superior, inferior. Greater, lesser. And biblically speaking, that's when this impulse becomes an egregious sin. If you don't believe me, you can just look at human history. Has anyone seen in human history the creation of hierarchies of value of certain people versus others that has led to atrocity? Really? Only like three people? It's like, I haven't seen that in human history before. It's part of our humanity. It can be good, but it also can become so broken. And this is what James is going to set his sights on to begin chapter two. The first of these issues. What he calls favoritism or partiality. Or what we in our modern parlance might say feeding and acting upon prejudice. We pick up in James chapter 2 verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James prohibits favoritism, and that is strong biblical ground. If you ever look at Deuteronomy and Leviticus, God shows no partiality and neither should his people. And then he turns to one expression of it that was a common issue in the early church which he sets up with an illustration. James wants you to imagine the scene. Two people come through the door of our church. One is identified by his clothing as a rich man. He's wearing jewelry and fine clothes. The other is identified by his clothing as a poor man because he's wearing dirty clothes. And what James is focused on here is how the church responds to, responds to both. The rich man is given the best seat while the poor man is told to stand or to sit on the floor, which is obviously quite rude, right? Y'all like Harry Potter. I think this church likes Harry Potter. Imagine someone comes in wearing a Gryffindor shirt, and then Lindsay comes in, I'm just picking on her today, with a Hufflepuff shirt, and I invite the Gryffindor person to sit up front next to me, and I tell Lindsay she can stand in the back or sit on the floor. How is Lindsay feeling right now? Lindsay? Not great. It's (laughs) rude. It's rude. But it's also more than just rudeness. You see, James believes that this action reveals much darker things going on within the church. To get why, you've got to understand his cultural context. You see, James's audience lived under the Roman Empire, which was a society built through domination, taxation, oppression, and above all, violence. And they maintained this empire through the enforcement of strict, strict, strict social hierarchy. Rome maintained control over the masses, the people they conquered, by keeping everyone in their place within society, as determined by honor and shame. Essentially, the more you were honored within Roman culture, the higher status you held up the social ladder, and the more valuable you were considered and treated. The more shamed you were believed to be, however, meant the farther you fell down this hierarchy in terms of status, treatment, in value. Author Michael Gorman created this graph to capture this, and I know you can't read it, but it's more the shape that matters the most. You see, this is what Roman society looked like. Power was concentrated at the top. The pinnacle of it was the emperor, obviously, who was considered divine in Roman culture, a god, and it was followed by senators, military leaders, and then wealthy landowners. Below them were bureaucrats and religious officials, who were actually there to meet the needs of the elite. This entire top group accounted for three percent of the Roman society. Right below them was a quasi-middle class that accounted for about 10 percent. This was successful merchants and artisans who had wealth but not much political power. They comprised about 10 percent. For those of you who are counting, that's only 13 percent of the society in those two groups, which means that the remaining 87% of people consisted of either the slaves and the working poor or what were deemed the expendables. Widows, orphans, prisoners, beggars, and the disabled, people who were believed to have no skills to contribute to those above them on the social ladder. These were considered the most shamed, the least valuable, the ones that you could treat, the worst. 87% fell into the working poor, slavery, or being considered expendable. This hierarchy determined your entire life, how you were treated, what you could do, how successful you could become, how much you could rise up the ladder, and especially how you related to those above and below you. And this is important. Because James focuses on clothing and seating for a reason. Clothing, in his mind, isn't just about fashion. In his culture, it noted someone's place within that ladder. The bejeweled, well-dressed man is of high social status. He is powerful. He is honored in Roman culture. The poor man, in the dirty clothes, is of low status. He is powerless. He is weak. He is considered shamed. And seating in this culture was based on honor too. You see, if you came into a banquet, or in this case, a religious meeting, those with the highest status got what they were called the seats of honor. And then you sat in descending order based on your status from them. In other words, what this church's response reveals is that they have adopted this Roman vision of value and hierarchy fully in how they treat each other. They rush to give the powerful man the honorable seat, whether it's because they think they'll rub off on them or they'll get something from them or they just want to look good. Well, they tell the poor man to stand. He's not worthy of a seat. Or to sit on the floor beneath them, assigning him to a place of shame, dishonor, and distance from them, not honor and inclusion. To simply put it, they don't treat these people as being equally worthy of human dignity. And for James, this favoritism, this prejudice, this discrimination is an act of judgment that is fundamentally sinful. There's no way to get around it. He believes it is incompatible with faith in Jesus. It's divided the community, it's violated justice, and it's usurped God as the only true judge of our world. It roots value in man-made status and replaces Jesus' great commandment to love others as ourselves with one that tells us we can treat others as beneath ourselves. And James will have none of it. He brings the hammer down. Verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love them? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are oppressing you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him you to you belong? James asks four increasingly sassy rhetorical questions here. The first is theological. Don't you know that God chose the poor? In other words, have you even read your Bible? And what James is getting at here is that when God chose a people, Israel, did he choose a mighty empire? No, the answer is no, just FYI. He chose a nation of slaves, the poorest, the most lowly nation in the region. When Jesus came to us, was he a rich king? No, he chose a life of poverty, he taught, as we looked at in previous weeks, that in his kingdom it was the poor who would be exalted. James writes God chose the poor to be rich in faith, to inherit his kingdom, and your prejudice against them spits on God's choices, his will, his values, his wisdom. And then he gets pragmatic. He says, And if that's not enough, look at your own life experiences. Is it not the rich who oppress you, who drag you to court, who blaspheme Jesus' name? The early church was filled with that 87%. The poor, the marginalized, people oppressed with no legal power in this system where status, not fairness, determined justice. People persecuted by an empire that denounced Jesus and claimed Caesar was divine. James is like the powerful, have oppressed you economically, legally, religiously, and you still show them favoritism while treating the poor who are just like you with contempt. If I can paraphrase, he's saying that's bonkers, y'all. It doesn't make any sense. For James, faith in Jesus, the poor servant Messiah, demands radical equality in how we see and treat other human beings. And it calls us to a radical care for the poor, to mercy-giving, generosity, and justice, especially for the weak, the lowly, the marginalized, the downtrodden of this world. That's what James believes the story of Jesus should call us to. In favoritism, and prejudice, it just leads the church to miss the kind of community that he calls it to be. James lays into him. This is one of the harshest sections that we're going to find in this book. But it's not for the purpose of shaming them. It's for the purpose of change. We pick up in verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Thus speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, as we've seen him do often, James charts two paths that we can go on one hand, continue in prejudice and become lawbreakers, which is an intense term for his Jewish audience. It's people who are convicted of breaking God's law, which is a big no-no if you're a Jewish person in the first century. You see, his audience believes that they are observing fully Jesus' interpretation of God's law, to love God and neighbor as themselves. And what James is doing here is actually kind of clever. He applies a common rabbinical belief that following God's law was an all or nothing proposition. One couldn't pick and choose which laws to follow. So committing to the law meant committing to every part of the law, and thus breaking one law meant breaking all of the law. Are y'all following me on that? And this is why it gets clever, because he highlights two commandments on purpose. Don't commit adultery and don't commit murder. He starts with adultery. And what scholars tend to believe is that he does this because likely his audience is good on that one. James does not address adultery in this letter pretty much at all, as he focuses on other topics that were probably more serious at his time. In other words, he's getting them to be like, whew, not us. And you can feel the noose kind of tightening, can't you? Because then he turns to murder. Now, is his audience filled with murderers? Maybe, probably not, <laughs> gonna hope not. But Jesus had an interesting teaching on the commandment, thou shalt not murder. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, he taught that anyone who was angry with or hated or showed contempt towards a neighbor was guilty of breaking the prohibition against murder. For James, their prejudice is contempt. It's picking and choosing when to honor Jesus' law of love based on where they think someone deserves to be placed in their hierarchy. And what does James say? He says, that ain't how this works. He convicts them of being lawbreakers. Someone confronted by facts in a court case that proved them wrong beyond any reasonable doubt. He says, look at the facts. You've let prejudice fester? Has that produced love of neighbor in your community? Has it produced justice? Has it produced equality? Has it produced compassion and mercy? You're divided. You're failing to care for the most wounded in your church. You're mirroring the broken systems of Rome, these systems that have broken our world over and over again. Does that reflect Jesus? Jesus. Now, does it reflect who Jesus calls his people to be in this world? No. James says, I rest my case. Just look at the facts. But, again, he's not just shaming them to leave them in that place. He wants them to come to this realization that they've broken this commandment because what he does is he wants the realization to have a divine purpose. He wants it to produce change in them. He writes, go a different way. Move forward speaking and acting as if you will be judged by only one thing in this world. It's not your wealth, it's not your status. It is the great commandment to love God and love others. That is the only thing to hold up and to use as a mirror for how you're doing. He says, let Christ in his law of love be the great equalizer as it's supposed to be. Repent from your prejudice Knowing God offers grace. Embrace mercy. See the poor as equal image bearers of God to yourself and then act accordingly. We don't need to live in shame when we realize our brokenness. In the gospel of grace, it just should push us to change. Let mercy triumph over judgment, James writes. And I love this. In the Greek, he's using the image of a gladiator standing victorious after combat with an opponent. I mean, just get that visual in your head, mercy standing victorious over judgment in the battle of who we will be as disciples of Christ. That's beautiful. That's a faith that works. It applies Jesus' law of love to our judgmentalism, and it defeats it. It can uproot our prejudices, and teach us to truly love our neighbor as ourselves through the victory of mercy, not judgment. And we have to listen here. I mean, obviously, like I said, this is one of the harshest passages in James. He takes this very seriously. And as we've said over and over again in this series, James is uniquely universal. It speaks across time and space. James wisdom Christians of all generations, because he believes this is a problem that is going to pop up over and over and over and over again, because it's wired in us. So we have to listen. And also notice this, James isn't talking about prejudice out there with those people, the non-Christians. He's speaking to the church in this letter. We're no different. The prejudices of our culture will seep into the church today just like they did in his day with the Roman Empire. It's inevitable. Some studies show that as young as three, we begin to pick up on language and attitudes of prejudice towards others from our culture, from our family, and when reinforced, they become so hard to change and they impact our behavior. And y'all, when the church lets prejudice fester within us, it gets dark quick. It stops being NBA power rankings and it starts being tangible impact on real human beings who come through our door looking to meet the God of grace. Economic prejudice is still very real today in the church. The church in America often nuzzles up to wealth and to power and celebrity and prestige while viewing the poor as morally failing or less than us. We end up talking about loving the poor while struggling to act on that love when they're in front of us, trailing to treat them as equal human beings when they walk in dirty and downtrodden through our doors. There's a viral story that many of you probably saw of a pastor who was hired by a new church and on his first visit, he went dressed up like a homeless person. And y'all, you could just read this passage from James and get how they treated him. They treat him as someone to be avoided, to be put in the back. People drew away. People wouldn't touch him. This is real today. It seeps in from our world. There's also any number of other forms that this favoritism and prejudice takes. You know, the American church continues to struggle with racism and white supremacy, with prejudices of sexuality, prejudices concerning beauty and appearance in terms of who makes it on stage, who's treated like they're the ones called by God. We still struggle with prejudice against the physically disabled, making room for them to come to church comfortably, with prejudices against mental illness and addiction, creating hierarchies of value, making judgments of people, and then slotting them into their place and treating them accordingly. And what James is saying is that when we do that, we're treating people who walk into the church of God in a way that ostracizes, condemns, neglects, punishes, and wounds. And y'all, that's sin. Plain and simple. James doesn't believe the church is immune to prejudice. That's not what makes us distinct. What James believes is that the church is distinct because it doesn't let prejudice fester. It's willing to face and repent from them, to search for them in the light of grace, to identify its prejudices and to let God deconstruct them and foster equality with us, equity, inclusion, and so we can grow in reflecting Him who called us in His kingdom in this world. To let this equalizing, loving faith work on us fully. Does anyone want a vision of the church that fosters more equality, equity, occlusion, and a little bit more of Christ in this world? And to close, I want to sit with this practically. Because what I love about James is he always seems to provide at least some sort of practical roadmap. I think first, he begins with brothers and sisters for a reason. James begins his address with the language of family. From the start, he throws out tribalism, that in-or-out-us-for-them mindset that lets prejudice fester in the first place. He starts with a conscious recognition of a familial bond. It's not them out there, it's your brother or sister being affected. That's where you start. Second, he names the prejudice and its impact. The first step is to admit that there's a problem. The first step of the church is to admit that prejudice is here. It's part of our human nature. It's going to happen. And then to name how it's impacted other image bearers of God. James doesn't shy away from either of these challenges. He comes right out and he names it. There's favoritism for the rich, prejudice towards the poor, and it's harmfully impacting your brothers and sisters. He acknowledges the experience of the poor, the marginalized. He reflects on the harm done and he calls it as it is. We can't be afraid to do that. He's not doing this to condemn them. He's doing it to motivate change. The world tells us that naming our brokenness is a permanent label. That if you've said something racist, you become a racist and that's it. And y'all, that is not Christ's story. That is not our story. Rejecting shame to name our prejudices so we can be healed of them and become more like God should be something that Christians do better than anybody. Because we have a story of grace. Grace. And if you need a place to start, there are great resources online. I've actually put one in the slides doc for just testing for bias. Take one of these tests, sit with the results, avoid that impulse to say, that's not me. In grace, let the truth, no matter how unpleasant, become your teacher and motivate you to become someone better. Third, having named it, James reflects on God's story. He asks, does this jive with God's story of liberation? Does it reflect how God treats the poor in Scripture? And as always, he asks, does it honor Jesus' commandment to fully love God and neighbor as ourselves, or does it show that we're picking and choosing how to apply that command? And fourth, finally, when we're convicted by the answer being yes, it is breaking that command, he doesn't beat them to death. He doesn't condemn them. He exhorts them to act. Recognizing any failure to love should motivate us to seek out different perspectives and to commit to concrete change in word and deed. It's that simple. This is the most critical step. We often believe that we think our way into right behavior, but y'all, more often than not, we behave our way into right thinking. Act. Go a different way. For James, this is a faith that works on our favoritism, our prejudice, the ways we make lists, assign value, and fall short of our calling. It's a faith grounded in this God of reckless love who calls us to become a people of reckless love if we just be willing to let his mercy triumph over our judgment. Amen? Amen. Amen.